0: Welcome to another message in God's wonderful word. Here at the Hillsdale Bible Church, we aim to learn God's way, that we might live God's way. May the words you hear today draw you closer to Him. Open your Bibles and your heart as we learn together in this message. Tonight we come to our final approach to Psalm 103. We've uh, studied a lot about mercy in this uh, last month and perhaps learned a few things about mercy that we didn't realize before. One being how absolutely large it is and two, that it has nothing to do with us. This is God's work, not ours. Uh, and uh, his mercy takes a different approach than ours does. Have you noticed the hostility in our world today? How can you help but notice it in the papers? Uh, the riots and the, uh, the events all around Ferguson and now in other cities and such. Uh, I think uh, America has a small sample of what is going on in other countries uh, the issues in the Middle East, uh, countries along those lines. It's a its a difficult time. It's a dangerous time in a lot of different ways. Um, but it brings to mind for me a particular set of verses that Paul told Timothy about the last days. And I don't think just because there's a riot going on we're in the last days. I think we're in the last days because we're in the last days. And uh the riots uh just show again that we live in a day when people are irreconcilable. And that's one of the traits of the last days. They do not want reconciled. They like their hostility and they they want their way. And we see that all around us. We're going into the last few verses of this psalm, but and it has much to do with with uh how do we how do we look at Others with mercy. The words we have before us. Verse, uh, let's see. I want to start at verse 19. How's that? The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, You who serve Him doing His will. Bless the Lord, all you works of His, in all places of His dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Heavenly Father, we have Your Word again in front of us, and thank You for this chapter. It has taught us much on mercy, and we sit as students of Yours, and even as children of Yours, at Your feet, and ask that You might teach us again from these words uh, give us a perspective of you and your mercy and how we as your children ought to be merciful people help us with this passage we pray here tonight in Jesus name Amen I think maybe of all the things here that we have studied this might be one of the challenges uh, that we all might have in common uh, as far as forgiveness forgiveness That's a big issue, probably in in many lives. I believe it's a great, difficult issue in our society. I think that has spilled into the church, and I think the church, I'm not pointing the finger right here, I'm saying the church uh, of uh, not just America, but the church, the body of Christ, has the issue of forgiveness that... uh, creates an incredible challenge, and part of that is because of this time we are living in, I believe, that is very prominent in unforgiving spirits, of irreconcilable spirits. Jesus asked the question, when the Son of Man comes to the earth, will he find faith on the earth? Uh, we read in scripture about what the end times will look like and especially when he comes and uh, with these kind of things as far as mercy is concerned and extending mercy and being merciful is it worth the fight? is it worth the effort that we be that way? Um, it's easier to give up you know and just go with the flow because after all swimming upstream as a little fish is a little difficult and that's where we are, to tell the truth. That's where we are. Uh, we go countercultural when we choose to be merciful. And I, I think that. Because when we study mercy, you pull it up in a thesaurus, you're going to find such words as compassion, uh, pity, kindness, sympathy, clemency, forgiveness, and understanding. Those are words that I found in my thesaurus when I looked up just the word uh, mercy. It's very difficult. I think that uh, fuses are about this long with people. Maybe it's that like Black Friday thing. I don't know. But uh, the fuses are rather short. When something goes wrong, it's quick to find who's at fault. Right? Who's to blame and who's going to pay for this? Usually the first couple of thoughts that go through your mind. Well, we know grace to be uh, what we have received we didn't deserve. Mercy is not giving us what we do deserve. And we've been seeing that anyway as we go through here. And my desire throughout this entire study is basically fourfold. Number one, the desire of this passage for me is to know better what is the mercy of our God. I wanted to know that more in depth. And that was part of our study here. I I wanted to know more fuller the extent of his mercy. How great is it? I wanted to appreciate more that mercy he has given to us. And I wanted to learn how I can best reflect his character uh, by becoming merciful myself. Personally, that's what I've been working in when I've studied this passage, and and that's where it's led us here today. What we have looked at, we've looked at the start of this chapter with the call to rejoice and the call to remember the mercy of our God. Uh, We've seen the benefits of His mercy. We have seen the character of His mercy. We have seen the need for His mercy. We have seen the extent of His mercy. We have seen the, the present condition that really requires mercy. We have seen the future condition this morning of his mercy. And now we're going to talk about the authority of his mercy. The authority of his mercy. And here's two questions that I'm going to ask as we start here. Do we? How do we really know that we are forgiven? Don't have to answer that but we will in the study we do here. do we really know that we are forgiven, that we have received mercy? How do we know that? And another question, and I do know people who have struggled with this, but is it a prideful thing to claim forgiveness and then move on? I know some folks who because their view of forgiveness is somewhat out of, out of line with what I believe God does, they think there should be ramifications for sins. And, and people who claim to be forgiven and then march on as if there's nothing left to do. That's the thing of the past, and now we're in the present, and we're going to live life now. Uh, they think, well, you shouldn't be that free in mercy. You ever meet people like that? They have trouble with people being forgiven? Hmm. We're going to ask some of these things because uh, as we work through this passage, I'm going to present before you a couple of of scenarios. All right? Now, we're going to study these words, but here's a couple of scenarios. This one I remember back in 2003 or somewhere there, 11, 10, 11 years ago, uh, and maybe it was just where we were located But there was a a woman who had committed some very, very terrible acts. Uh, She murdered her children. Uh, She was arrested. She was convicted. She was sentenced to die for that crime, which everyone said, perfectly justifiable. That's exactly what should be, because she had murdered her children. But while awaiting execution, she came to know the Lord. All of a sudden, a whole new department of conversation opened up. Here are some of the things that came as a result of that. Some doubt that she was even a believer. Uh, Can't be true, right? She had murdered her children. She can't be a believer. Right? There were some who doubted that. There were some who excused her behavior as expected that her newfound faith was some sort of psychological crutch. There were some who denounced her faith and said it was a fraud. There were some who considered it unfair that she should be a believer. That she should have eternal joy, that she should have peace, that she should have hope. And it's not fair because it wasn't given to her victims. And so they said she shouldn't have it either. It's just not fair in the church's name. It's not fair to justice that she should be giving eternal life where she took the life of these little ones. And some struggled very deeply in her heart. And some even said it with their mouths. But they struggled with this phrase. She is now a sister in the Lord. That's a hard thing, isn't it? That is a hard thing. I remember the newspaper arguing this. And many of them unbelievers, just trying to figure out is this fair that she could claim such a title. Believer. Christian. They wrestled with that. Oh, it's a terrible thing to have to wrestle to. But As those who wrestled with that on a daily basis, those questions arise concerning forgiveness and mercy. And here's where I think some of the problem is, because it does express our hearts. We are are more than willing to receive truckloads of mercy for us, but we only like to dispense it with teaspoons. That's something that... Maybe it's just true in my heart, but here's some some scenarios for you. I've got three scenarios. One is in John chapter 8. Let's go over there for a minute. John chapter 8, and perhaps just by saying John chapter 8, you know exactly the story that I want to set before you. John 8. The, the story is... Um, starting in verse 1 and it goes all the way through verse number uh, 11 and in case you're saying well if you have a particular translation that says wait it's not in mine uh, you might find it down in the footnotes (laughs) there are there are manuscript issues and some Bibles just have issues with whether or not this should be in there or not many translations has it right there John 8 1-11 and some you might find in a footnote but um this is where Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, in verse number 2, he came into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. Oh, they set her before him in the center of the court, and, she, and they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now, the law of Moses, In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him, that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. And when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone, and the woman, where she was, in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She says, No one, Lord. And he says, I do not condemn you either. Go, from now on sin no more. Did you just hear that last phrase that Jesus said? Neither do I condemn you. He was the only one in the crowd who had the right to throw a stone, right? And I don't know, but if he threw a stone, boy, how many would he need? He's God, right? He didn't even need to throw a stone for that matter. But the only one who had the right to throw a stone at this time, the only one... Also, in that whole crowd, willing to give what? Mercy. The only one willing to give mercy. He told her, go your way from now on sin no more. Questions, ready? Here we go. You've just heard the scenario and you've heard it before. Was she really forgiven by the Lord? Yes, she was. Would you expect her reception to be, what would you expect it to be, the next time she went for water at the well where all the other town ladies were? How do you think they'd treat her the next day? Hmm. What would you expect her reception to be the next time a religious leader saw her on the street? Hmm. Hmm. They're the ones who started this whole thing by bringing her in, right? What do you think would be her reception the next time she approached the temple to sacrifice and worship? You think there might be some uncomfortable things going on in these scenarios? Let me pull it into 2014. If she attended the church, how would she be received the next Sunday? All right, we're getting personal. It's a little test of our own hearts here. Let me ask you this one, because this one also gets rather interesting. If she became a believer, as as we would assume, she was forgiven. But we're in this dispensation. If she became a believer and she sought church membership, and down the road she desired to teach our children. You want a different scenario? Let's try a different one. Uh Let's go to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. This is a a little scenario. I have fun with words once in a while. The man named Zacchaeus. Chapter 19 of the book of Luke. He, J- Jesus, entered Jerusalem, or Jericho, and was passing through. There was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief te- tax collector, and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was, and wasn't able because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree, in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for today, I must stay at your house. And he hurried and he came down and received him gladly. When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, Half of my possessions I will give to the poor. If I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today, salvation has come to this house, because he, too, is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. You know, when we study this, we do this a lot in Sunday school. We emphasize his small stature where we ought to emphasize the large amount of mercy that the Lord extended to him. He was a chief tax collector. We saw that. He worked for the Romans. The Romans' policy was simply, you get what we need, and anything you add to it is yours. And that was the tax collector's motive. And their way of doing things. So they cheated their own countrymen out of their income. Uh, He had become very rich, and obviously the crowd did not like him. We saw in verse number seven that they grumbled. They called him a man who is a sinner. Boy, they had him labeled, didn't they? A sinner. The Lord's response, what was it in verse 8, verse I mean verse 9, verse 10, but especially verse 9? Today, salvation has come to this house. He too is a son of Abraham. Is that a picture of mercy to you? Ready for the questions? Was he really forgiven by the Lord? Yeah, we would say that, wouldn't we? What would you think would be his reception the next time he went to work? For it never says he quit his tax job. Hmm. What would you expect his reception to be the next time a religious leader saw him on the street? What do you think his reception would be the next time he approached the temple for sacrifice or worship? Move to 2014. If he attended our church, how would we receive him? If he sought membership, if he desired to be the treasurer, aha! Uh-huh. Would we have reservations? Probably. Uh, but would we know mercy? Zacchaeus, his name means pure, clean. Isn't that funny? We always think small. But that's scenario number two, and it still leaves us a little bit uncomfortable, doesn't it? What do you do with a guy like that? He was such a great sinner. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter number five. 2 Corinthians chapter five. And verse number 19. Second Corinthians 5.19. Just right in the middle of a phrase, I know, but this is, there's some key ingredients here. Verse 19 says, Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. In the process of reconciling us to himself, which he accomplished through Christ, Right? We see that. What he did through Christ, who died on the cross to pay for our sins, obviously. uh, He was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Right? That little phrase there. He, He chose not to log our sins. He didn't keep the record in the reconciliation and Christ paying for it, the record has been removed. He didn't log it. He didn't keep inventory. He didn't keep count. Now, this is what the text says that God has done for us, right? But what did he give to us in this same passage? He did not count our sins against us, but then what did he do? He did commit to us something, right? The word of reconciliation. He gave to us the word of reconciliation. He put that into our care. He put that into our trust. It's a ministry. It's a message. It's literally the word of reconciliation. That which He did for us, He entrusted to us to tell other people. Right? That's what he's given to us to do. We are ambassadors. If you if you look through the rest of this passage, above it and behind it, and, and all these other places, verse 20 brings that out, verse 18 brings it out. This, he gave us his ministry of reconciliation. He made us ambassadors for Christ. And who were we? We were the sinners. The lost ones, weren't we? We were the ones that had the list of things wrong with us. He took those away and he gave us the ministry. If you were in charge of that department, would you trust it to a sinner who has been converted? Knowing as we do, their past? Here's the thing. The... The reconciliation factor is so hard for the church is because we can't get over the inventory of sin. God can. Right? God can get over that inventory list. But for some reason, we in the church can't. We struggle with the inventory. So, knowing that, go back to our our passage here in Psalms. And I want to show you what helps a whole lot with this entire topic and the scenarios I set before us. And that is the authority of His mercy. The authority of His mercy. The statement is very clear in verse 19. The Lord has established His throne. You see those words? Established His throne in the heavens and His sovereignty rules over almost everything. No. Over all. Now, break it down into little bite-sized pieces here. When we talk about the Lord, if your Bible translation does this, some of them do this, uh, the Old Testament scholars found a way to show you uh, the name Jehovah in Hebrew. Rather than write Jehovah, they would actually put Lord in all capital letters. Maybe your translation reflects that there. They're, you're all capital letters. You say, well, why did they do that? That's actually literally the name Jehovah in the Hebrew Scripture. All right? They have different words for Lord and such, and that's the way to tell you that is that sacred name, that important name. It's Lord in all capital letters. It's His special name that the Jews considered such a proper name of God that uh, they did not want to pronounce it. It was too holy to pronounce. Uh, Moses said, what is your name? So I could tell them. And God said, I am sent you. And the letters that spell out such a word and and such that comes out to the word Jehovah are four little consonants. It's Y, here's the English equivalent, Y-H-V-H. We put in vowels because the Jews did too. They put in vowels so they could pronounce the word. In other words, they put in the vowels for Adonai, another name for, you know, God who we adore or such. They take that name Adonai, it's a bunch of vowels, they take the vowels, stuff it in between the letters of Jehovah, and when they're reading through the text, when they see that, they read the vowels and they read Adonai instead of Jehovah. Because it's too sacred to say his name. Too holy. They even say that uh, uh, when they're writing out the name Jehovah on the text, that they get it of the pen and start with a new one. Now, that's stated an awful lot of time in the Old Testament. Bick would have loved to provide the pens. To, to write out the Old Testament, because there was an endless supply that was needed there. But all the way through, they, that was the way they considered that name to be so, so holy. And you may think that their behavior is somewhat excessive in regard to that name. But I think that we've gone quite the other extreme, and we don't treat it with any respect in our society. They use it as a swear name, don't they? They drag it down through the mud constantly. Uh, Sometimes we even treat it uh, in such a vain manner, we don't take it very seriously. Um, James tells us in chapter 3, 9 through 11, with it we bless the Lord our God, speaking of our tongue, and with it we curse men who has been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought to be not to be this way. How can a fountain send both, both fresh and bitter water? And at times, you know, we come into the church and we maintain an a, a atmosphere that his name is holy and respected and such. And then other times we live as if that name is vain to us. The way we use it, the way we talk about him, the way we go on as if he's not even a, a concern to us. He is the Lord, isn't he? And when did he stop being the Lord? When did he stop being so holy and so great and so majestic? doesn't does he he's like that all the time this passage is emphasizing that as we've been studying it through by by the lord's name when the lord's name is you're speaking of his authority when you speak of the lord's name it speaks of his throne that's authority and our passage says the lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereign rule over all That's the Lord we speak of. He's sovereign. He's sovereign. You know, back in the days of Genesis, chapter number 11, they built a tower of Babel. Remember? They were building this tower. Do you know why they were building that tower? They told you. They said, we're going to build this tower to reach into the heavens to make a name for ourselves. Satan has similar desire in Isaiah 14. He said in his heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly. I will ascend to the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. They like the authority. They like the position. They like that place. But scripture says in reality... There is no God greater than our God. No God greater than our God. Authority begins and ends with Him. That's why it says so clearly here, in this passage on mercy, it speaks of His authority. He is sovereign. And the sovereign ruler over all. All Alright? We can see that as we're looking at here. And all means all. The whole. Every single thing. He is sovereign. Sovereign. So, let's insert it into our thoughts this morning and put these questions together. If the Lord says it is forgiven, is it? Ooh, you know where I'm going? <laughs> this, is, this is not based on our opinion anymore, is it? It's based on what he says. If he says it's forgiveness, who really are we to say it's not? Satan is the one who started the phrase "Has the Lord really said?" And we've been repeating that for centuries. Has the Lord really said? Has the Lord really said? Has we've denied His authority over and over and over and over again? When He says that they're forgiven, they're forgiven. Because he's sovereign in that. Matter of fact, here's something very interesting. In the last couple of verses, you may say, well, these just must be the doxological ending here in verse 20. Bless the Lord, you his angels. Bless the Lord, you his hosts. Bless the Lord, all his works. Those last three verses start that way. And we say, okay, well, we're moving off of this. But actually, each one of these is a response to his authority. The angels, for example... They're mighty in strength, in verse 20. They perform His word. They obey His voice. Right? They obey His voice. Why? Because He's a sovereign God. They obey His voice. You know, they are not omniscient beings. But they are smarter than we are, I think. <laughs> they are not omnipotent beings, but they have more power than we are. They are not omnipresent beings. They have to be in one place at a time. But they're described as as powerful beings who obey Him. How often? The angels in heaven? How often do they obey Him? Let's assume all the time, right? <laughs> I think we're safe in that department. He tells them what to do, and they obey, they perform, they accomplish. They, by obeying, the actual Hebrew word is they hear him, they listen, and they do it. It's a perfect lesson for children, right? It's more than just listen, but it's listen and do, listen and do. And that's the Hebrew word for this, that they do, they, they hear intelligently he would tell his angels to go here or to go there, and they go here or they go there, because it testifies that he has authority over them. Now, the psalmist says, Bless the Lord, you his angels. I don't think they needed the reminder. I don't think they needed a prompting to say, you know, praise the Lord, because that is their practice. That is what they do. They practice. They bend their knee and they give praise to His name. So we see that group there. We see also, in verse number 21, the host. That's His army. Right? Probably also an angelic uh, description here. The host of a, of a group of soldiers waiting to do His will. It says in, in this verse, Bless the Lord, verse 21. All you His hosts who serve Him doing His will. Why do they do his will? Because he is sovereign, right? And he says, do this, and they do it. Jesus even brought that up at one time when he was being arrested. Remember? They were going to arrest him, and the disciples, especially Peter, thought, hey, we'll help you out. We'll get a sword. We'll just defend you. And Jesus said, you have no idea. That's my slight paraphrase, but... uh, do you not know that I can appeal to my father and he could send 12 legions of angels now? 12 legions. And I've always had fun with math in this department, maybe only, but uh, the concept of of what an angel can do, one of them appeared in the days of Hezekiah and eliminated an army of 185,000 soldiers overnight. And then I thought, well, what's a legion? And that comes out to roughly about 6,000 angels. And so I did the math of 6,000 times 185,000 to see how many could they eliminate in one night. And it was over 1 billion. And I thought, you know, that in that day probably was pretty much wiping out the population of the earth. I don't know the exact numbers, but that's all possible with just calling on the Lord to send them the angels. Now, would they do that if he called on them? They would, because that host does his will. Right? That's what it says. This host does his will. They obey his will. He didn't call for them. But in Scripture, we read and we even say, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right? We say such things. Uh, We study of angels who are also called ministers at times. They attend him, they serve him, they wait on him. And I don't know that this is actually a scenario that fits them, but if God should say to an angel, I want you to do absolutely nothing but stand there for all eternity, they would do it because that's his will. They obey him, right? Right? That's simple. They obey him. Whatever he says to do, they obey him. And here the psalmist is saying, okay, you who are his host, bless the Lord, as if they needed prompting. That's probably part of their practice all the time, is to give praise to the Lord, to give praise to the Lord. Bending their knee before Him is something that they're used to doing. So, this, these two groups are Angelic groups who listen to Him, obey Him, serve Him, do His will. They're set before you as examples right here. Set before us as examples. They are called to the work of blessing him. And verse 22, Bless the Lord, all you his works, in all places of his dominion. Where doesn't he have dominion? Hmm. I love one side of the story of Jonah. The story of Jonah, this part I love so much. It's the story of obedience. You will never find that in a commentary. But I call it that. The story of obedience. What does that mean? The wind obeyed the Lord. The sea obeyed the Lord. The sailors obeyed the Lord. The whale obeyed the Lord and swallowed Jonah. The whale obeyed the Lord and threw up Jonah. The people of Nineveh obeyed the Lord. The king of Nineveh obeyed the Lord. The plant obeyed the Lord The worm obeyed the Lord, the sun obeyed the Lord, the wind obeyed the Lord, and throughout the whole story, one man constantly fought against the Lord's will. Who was that? Jonah. His biggest gripe, do you know what it was? This is what he literally said in chapter 4, verse 2. You are a gracious and compassionate God who is slow to anger and abundant in mercy. That was his complaint. Isn't that exactly what we've seen here tonight in our study? What is our complaint? That our hearts are so hard to extend mercy to another person because God is so merciful. It doesn't seem right. Guess who Jonah is? Aha! You feel a little fishy? No, that's not funny. You, you you look at this, you say, "This is us. This is where we are in this whole story." Really? I appreciate your mercy to me, God, but don't give it to them. They don't deserve it. They don't deserve it. That's really something very interesting to say because we are questioning. His authority. We are questioning His Word when we don't see it His way. The end of the book of Psalms, you get to Psalm 148, and everything's called to praise Him. The wind is called to praise Him. The sea is called to praise Him. The sun and the moon, and and all these are called to praise Him. All the elements of the earth and creation acknowledges his authority, obeys his will, praises his name, except man. Except man. 1 Peter tells us in chapter 1, verse 2, that we have been called to obedience as believers. We've been sprinkled clean with the blood of Christ that we may obey him. That we may obey him. And then the church reads in Ephesians 4 verse 32. That we are to be kind to one another. Tender hearted. And guess what the next word is? Forgiving each other. Just as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you. We like half of that verse. We like the half that comes on us. We struggle with the part of giving it to somebody else, and here's what I conclude: when I realize that that is not just a, a nice little thing to tack on to the church, uh, a, a good recommendation or suggestion, but it's literally a command. And when you don't obey a command, what is the name for that? Sin. It is sin, isn't it? It is sin. It's a sin against our our Lord's authority. For us to be unforgiving. It is, a, it is a sin against our Lord's character for us to be unforgiving. It, it is a sin against the Lord's word for us to be unforgiving. Told you, this is the most uncomfortable section of the whole chapter. Because we're standing in the, in the presence of His authority. And we appreciate His mercy, and He tells us to be merciful. Right? He makes us that way. And I I speak to myself in all this, because perhaps, uh, like other people who carry a burden of sin... We ask the Lord to forgive us and then we keep carrying it. We question his authority. We question his character. We question his word in that sense that we're not sure that he really meant it when he removed our sins as far as the east is from the west or as high as the heavens are from the earth. We, We question that at times, don't we? We're not sure he really forgave us. You know people like that? They just carry that burden and carry that burden and carry that burden and they're questioning his authority every time they do it. And I do it too. And that's not right. You would say, that's not right to do. God truly is forgiven you, right? Did he forgive that lady the day they brought her in? John 8? Yes, he did. Did he really forgive Zacchaeus that day when he met him on the road? Yes, he did. Did he really forgive us at the cross of Christ? Yes, he did. Now, is that based on us? No, it's based on his authority. Right? Okay. Now, if we can come to grips with that, all of a sudden we have to turn and aim it towards somebody else too. Because how often do we keep the log of somebody else's sins in our heart? we keep record of these things as far as i can tell when the lord forgives things the only one keeping a record is us we're the only ones who do that and this is what john has to say in first john 3 you want to go over there for a minute i'll show you what this is what he says first john chapter 3 this is such a sweet little passage verse 19 and on into verse number 22 1 John three nineteen 19-22. Okay, you ready? We will know, he says, we will know by this, that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him. What is going to give us some confidence before him? Standing before him is a frightful thought for some people. (laughs) But we will stand before him, right? How do you have a heart that's sure? Right? Here it is. In whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Do you like that verse? I love that verse. Because my heart condemns me. And guess who's greater than that heart? God is. Isn't that sweet? I love it. Anyway, this is what he says. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him. Because we keep His commandment and do the thing that are things that are pleasing in His sight. Ooh. That's a pretty pretty nice response to it all, right? When we talk to Him, we ask Him, and here's what people are afraid to ask Him, Lord, give me a forgiving spirit. Lord, give me the ability to forgive that person and see them as You see them. Lord, give me a merciful spirit. Teach me to be merciful like You are. Do you know what we're asking when we ask those things? Wow. And yet, does he give those things? We ask and what does he do? He gives. And then we we stand before him with a sure heart. There's a bumper sticker. You've seen it so many times. I know over the years it used to be there. Maybe it's all faded on the back of Pinto's now. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. We could almost tack that behind every single one of our scenarios here tonight, can't we? God said it. God said, that is mercy. It's not based on us. Not what we did. Not how we went about our our repentance. (laughs) I've seen that. That's kind of a funny thing. But people evaluate forgiveness on how well they repented. Alright? It's not based on us in any fashion whatsoever. It's based on a merciful God who's extended to us so great a mercy and He said it with His own words. That's mercy. And that's the mercy that we like. But it's also the mercy that we're called to carry. You see? That's why the conclusion of this is... Bless the Lord, not bless me. Not bless him, bless her. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Because mercy is his department. And he has given us the ministry of it. Now, if you wonder if he's really given that to you, then you're questioning his authority again. Because he did give it, didn't he? He's given to us the word of Reconciliation. Okay, so what do we do now? We've read this passage, we've studied this passage, we've thought through this passage, we've been uncomfortable with this passage, but as we've learned, I hope we've got a better understanding of the mercy of our God, we have a better appreciation of the mercy of our God, and we have a better idea of what we ought to do with it. Right? I think it should change us. Because He's changed us. So let's commit that to prayer tonight and then let's start practicing what we're called to do. Heavenly Father, we stop again and say thank you for your mercy. That we could be the recipients of such some, uh, something that's so glorious, so wonderful, so needed, and so welcomed in our lives. We thank you, Lord, for it. You are a great God. I can't even imagine serving any other idol, rock, tree, piece of metal, whatever it is, that couldn't give me one single thing to satisfy my soul. But you are my God. And you are a gracious and compassionate God who abounds in mercy. And I thank you, Lord, for giving that to me. To each of us here as we sit before you, as we pray at this moment, we are so grateful for that mercy Lord, we also know we're responsible to dispense it as well. It's not our mercy to give, it's your mercy that you've given to us. So often we're hoarders of it. We limit it because we see things from our own eyes. We measure forgiveness from human hearts and not from your heart. And we have failed perhaps a lot in this department. But we need to learn, Lord... And we need to do things the way you have designed them. We want to obey you. We want to hear and obey. We want to do your will. We want to glorify your name. And I think what we can do best is reflect you and your character, your love and your mercy and your righteousness in a world that desperately needs to see it. Start with my heart, Lord. Start where we are here tonight. And help us to be those kind of people that reflect our God well. And we'll give you the glory for this. In Jesus' name, amen.